Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. I've always been attracted to climbs that are aesthetically pleasing. That's like a big motivator for me. This is Nina Williams. Nina Williams is a professional climber, has been bouldering at a very high level for a very long time, and is uh, known for her highball ascents. Uh, Super quick, what's highball bouldering for those of us who don't know? Highball bouldering is really when the line with free soloing starts to blur and there start to be serious consequences if you were to fall off the boulder. In the U.S., there's probably no greater concentration of classic highball boulders than in the buttermilks just outside of Bishop, California. The boulders, they're just... They're super impressive. They're the size of houses. Uh, They range from 20 to 50 feet tall. Um, And people come from all around the world to climb in the buttermilks and admire these problems. Um, And there's plenty of shorter problems, but a far smaller percentage of anyone ever steps up to these cutting edge climbs. And Nina is one of them. And when I climb on these highballs, I feel like just for a few moments, I'm in this huge wide landscape, like this big piece of art. And highballing gives me this sense of connection to the rock, to the landscape, and it's like an expression of my own piece of art because I'm just in this amazing vista, basically. I like how bouldering is this super condensed version of climbing. You have to try really, really hard for a short amount of time, and all of the details come down to these really micro movements. So replacing you know, your pointer finger with your middle finger on a hold or moving your foot one dime piece to the right makes all the difference and sometimes it's easy to get really caught up in these little details but it's cool to unlock that sequence once you do when you're 40 feet off the ground with no rope those details they start to matter a whole bunch alex you you did the first ascent of too big to flail and you've repeated it Ina. will you describe it for us too Big to Flail is a very proud line up the center of a very, very large boulder. Nestled in the buttermilks in Bishop, California. I mean, it's got to be... A 50-foot boulder problem. Even though it's like the biggest boulder you'll ever see. It's like a boulder bigger than most houses. Like, almost dead vertical, like, maybe, like, more slightly a slab. It could easily be a four or five bolt sport route. Smooth granite. Lots of cool-looking lichen. You know, when I first inspected Too Big to Flail, I wasn't really sure if there would be holds and if it would be possible. But as it turns out, it's a perfect straight journey up this magnificent boulder. I mean, it just wound up being a really impressive boulder problem. I threw a rope on it and couldn't do any of the moves because, like, the feet seem impossibly slippery and not even there. I mean, half of them are covered in lichen. And the holds, you know, are like these tiny fingernail cramps. And at any moment, if something like felt a little off, my foot could have popped. Well, so I think if you fell off the top of Too Big to Flail, well, honestly, by the time you get to the top of Too Big to Flail, it's really hard to know what would happen because it's hard to know if you'd even land on the pads, you know, the landing zone that you've sort of created because you're so high that really anything could happen. You know, like if your heading is off by just a few degrees and you fall a little bit sideways, you would just like land on the rocks next to the boulder and you would definitely be severely injured. Like you'd probably break everything. 
you know, it is it is a dangerous sport. Nina, how did you prepare? Well, I climbed it on a rope. The turning point was when I asked myself, okay, I've climbed it four times now. Am I going to be able to climb it a fifth time without falling? And I was like, yes. I can't quite put a finger on where that confidence comes from. Maybe confidence is the wrong word. Maybe it's like a type of certainty. Like, okay, I didn't fall the last four times on this route. I feel good about it. And I'm going to go for it a fifth time as if I have a rope on. The only difference is that I won't have a rope. It's a pretty, pretty big difference, though. <laughs> no, no, it's totally fine. <laughs> yeah, you know. Getting to the top of Too Big to Flail felt more fulfilling and satisfying and more like some sort of ceiling being broken for me because I wasn't 100% confident during the climb. And I experienced more physical signals of fear. In some ways, that's one of the most joyous parts of climbing is when you fully commit to something and you sort of set your fear and hesitation aside and then just execute it. You know, when you decide, I'm going to trust this foot, and then you stand on it and you sort of find out whether or not it sticks. Too big to flail is a very specific type of boulder problem, a unique flavor that is not for everyone. That's really not for most people. But by and large, bouldering has become the most popular, the most accessible, the most athletic, the most pervasive form of climbing today. The essence of the sport gets distilled down into a few moves, typically no higher than a single story building. It's an incredible path into the sport because there's no technical rope skills required. You don't really need a lot of equipment, just some shoes and some chalk. You can do it after work, and it's easier to catch up with a friend when there isn't a few hundred feet of rope between you. While not every state in America boasts massive cliffs, the majority of places do have some sort of great bouldering area, something worthy. If you were to walk up to one of these areas on a busy weekend, you'd find people working out sequences of moves until perfection, dipping their hands into buckets of chalk, lunging dynamically for holds, cheering for each other with each tiny summit reached. It all seems so intuitive when you look at it. The dynamic movement, the chalk, the practice makes perfect mentality. Sometimes it's easy to forget that somebody actually invented all of that. And the light bulb went off not in Yosemite, but in an intro to gymnastic class in the 1950s while a young freshman was fulfilling a PE requirement. Today, we talk with a person often credited as the creator of climbing's most popular discipline, John Gill. And we get some help from John Sherman, who helped carry that legacy forward. Find out how the climbing discipline, once deemed practiced, became the main event and opened the door for climbing's growth. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. And this is Climbing Gold. My climbing began in 1953. I was a 
junior in high school in Atlanta, Georgia. This is John Gill. In that same year, Americans were cementing a love affair with the TV. Are you tired, run down, listless? Do you poop out at parties? <laughs> the Cold War is in full that swing. new language is the language of atomic warfare. Everest conquered. The New Zealander, Edmund Hillary, got his first... In that May, Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary became the first people to successfully climb Mount Everest in what was maybe climbing's first moment in the mainstream media. I was no kind of an athlete at all at the time. I didn't know anything. I was about six feet tall and 145 pounds and kind of awkward. And I had a fellow classmate, a girl who was doing some sort of an archaeological paper on something in northern Georgia, and it required a little bit of climbing, apparently, and she recruited me. But I decided to go with her, so we drove over to this place called Fort Mountain, northern Georgia, and uh, bushwhacked down through the side of the mountain and found uh, the set of cliffs that she wanted to investigate. She had a little bit of equipment. She had a rope, army surplus nylon rope, and some slings, and a couple of carabiners, and things like that. They were not big cliffs, they were about 80 feet high, I guess, and not very wide. So I put a rope down over them, and she taught me how to rappel. <laughs> that was my beginning, <laughs> hanging on a rope, that was it. Gil had found his passion. For the next year or so, I started going out to Stone Mountain outside of Atlanta and scrambling around on the cliffs there and going up to North Georgia on a couple of occasions and scrambling around. And there was practically no literature available about climbing. Uh, the perception of rock climbing was simply that it was an extension of hiking. So I kind of picked up climbing maneuvers, techniques and things on my own. That summer before college, he made his first trip west, where he climbed around Boulder and ended his trip with a bang when he soloed the east face of Long's Peak. That's a crazy story that we'll dive into in next week's bonus episode. Really makes me appreciate the fact that climbing gyms existed when I came into the sport. Gill entered Georgia Tech in 1954. Back then, every student, to get their degree, had to pass a series of physical education classes. The first was track and field, the second was swimming, for which the final exam consisted of passing a drown-proofing exam where students had to swim from one end of the pool and back with their hands and legs bound. It seems pretty hardcore to throw a student into the pool with their hands and legs tied, but uh, I guess it is one way to test swimming, and it certainly shows a degree of toughness, if nothing else. The third course was the one that I actually took my first quarter there in the fall of 54, gymnastics. And that was taught by Coach Lyle Welser, who was a well-known figure in the gymnastic community at the time, an authority. To pass the class, you had to learn how to complete simple gymnastic moves on parallel bars, high bar, pommel horse, etc. The first day, the coach is walking Gill's class through each apparatus. Well, right beside each piece of apparatus was a, was a wooden stand. Inside the bowl at the top of the wooden stand was chalk. So Coach Welser said, you know, you put this on your hands and demonstrated, demonstrated how, how the grip improved by putting it on your hands. And when I saw that, I thought immediately, you know, my hands get sweaty. <laughs> I'm going to start taking this stuff when I go climbing. <laughs> well, I immediately started taking a small block of chalk with me when I went out 
in the late evenings, a couple of times a week, a friend and I would, uh, I stayed in the dorm for a while, we would, we would rappel out of the upper story of the dorm and go climbing around campus. Took a rope with us, as a matter of fact, to rappel off the light towers in the football stadium, things like that. So I started using chalk, you know, right then, 1954. And then I would take it out to Stone Mountain and use it out there. The first few weeks of that course, I began to, I began to perceive rock climbing differently. I no longer saw it as an extension of hiking. I saw it as an extension of gymnastics. And I started thinking, well, if it's going to be an extension of gymnastics, how do you facilitate that? How do you completely vision that? And I thought, well, first of all, you do your climbing on a small piece of rock. So it's not, it's a, you know, perhaps the equivalent and height of uh, the rope climbing in the gym. And then you work out a routine, which means, you know, a particular set of holes going up this rock. I also began looking for small boulders outcrops, you know, that I could practice this new perspective of climbing on. And I found a few, nothing very difficult, but, you know, something to get me started. I had no idea, you know, what bouldering was. Gill often gets called the father of modern bouldering, which is a great term, but it's not entirely accurate. Gill thinks it was the California climbers of the era, epitomized by Bob Camps, Yvonne Chouinard, and Royal Robbins, who came up with the term bouldering. Outside of Paris and the forest of Fontainebleau, aspiring alpinists had been linking practice circuits through the thousands of sandstone boulders to train for bigger objectives for decades. In the 1950s, Georgia might as well have been the hinterlands of climbing. Paris and California were basically a different universe. So over the next few years, working in isolation, Gill began to develop a set of ideas where he melded gymnastic principles of dynamic movement to rock climbing. It was a completely unique way of thinking. There were a few key leaps. One, how you did something was important. And basically, he cared about mastery. He cared about the execution of a boulder problem, of a climb. But he didn't really care about summits. Two, climbers should think of climbing as a performance. Perform, even that word, that's the language of athletes, not dirtbags living off of cat food in Yosemite. I think that's the really interesting side of John Gill bringing gymnastics into climbing and bringing a serious background in gymnastics into climbing, is that he just cared so much more about the way in which climbs were executed and the, the style, the technique, the precision. Three, dynamic movement was the path forward. What gymnasts were doing on the bars could be applied on vertical faces. At that time, the leading climbers viewed lunging as bad form, and for good reason. It makes sense that if you're climbing big walls, you're never, especially on ropes that broke, I mean, you know, gold line back in the day, if you're climbing a big wall and there's a legitimate chance that your rope could just snap if you weighted it, obviously you shouldn't be jumping for holds. You know, there's just way too much uncertainty in that and way too much risk. When you start tackling boulders, you know, focusing more on the physical challenge, like it makes sense to be jumping for things just because it allows, you know, a broader range of, of, of movement, different types of climbs. You know, that makes sense. What Gill was doing both intellectually and physically would change climbing forever, but it would take decades before anyone would understand and appreciate it. After the break, 
Gil comes in contact with the Californians, and we meet another legendary iconoclast of climbing. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. (laughs) I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Koros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. If I, like, name a body part or, like, a portion of your body. Let's just start it on the feet and go up. Broken sesamoids, they're the little bones right underneath the ball of your foot. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, they hurt like the dickens when you break them. This is John Sherman. John Sherman is a climbing legend who contributed to the growth and popularity of bouldering in in the U.S., not just because he invented the grading system, which is obviously a huge contribution, uh, and also sort of popularized Waco, one of the premier bouldering destinations in, in the world now. Sherman was prolific in the 80s and 90s. Upside down. The V in V grades actually stands for vermin, which was Sherman's nickname. A ruptured Achilles. He helped develop the crash pad, which would make bouldering a lot safer. He wrote widely. He published widely. He he really contributed to the the knowledge around bouldering. He wrote an incredible book on bouldering history called Stone Crusade. And Gil was both a hero and a mentor and friend. Sherman committed his life and body to the sport, as you can see by this list of injuries. Eight concussions now that I can remember... Although, to be fair, two of those, one was mountain biking and one was ice skating, the others were all climbing. I'd probably be known for two things now as the the drinking climber and the flip-flops and the Patagonia poster, uh, <laughs> or as the guy who created V-grades. You know, I don't mind the Patagonia poster one. <laughs> I was having some fun when we took that shot. But the uh, being known for creating v grades is i mean i think that that's a uh, you know pretty dubious uh uh honor i mean some people think it's cool but yeah i was always more drawn to the creativity and the adventure of it than just a sheer difficulty which obviously requires greater athleticism if that's you know what you're going to uh pursue if you can you know shine more of a light on Gill and his accomplishments, well, that would be awesome. Anytime they reach for a block of chalk or lunge for a hold, they should know where that came from. Because he didn't act like other people, you know, his kind of 
rewards were so internal, not external to him. He was doing stuff that like nobody else really understood, nobody cared about, but it was right for him and it changed the world of climbing. During summers away from school, Gil continued to make journeys to climb out west. The Tetons were a particularly favorite place, and it was there that he made contact with a couple of the leading climbers of the day, Yvonne Chouinard and Bob Camps, at the Jenny Lake campground. They were all there to tackle the big peaks surrounding Jackson, but on days off they would gather around the handful of boulders outside the campground. And Gil put on a clinic. You know, he was the person who really you know, showed us how, you know, how hard a human can climb on the rock by what he was doing by creating gymnastic routines on these boulders. On Red Cross Rock, Gil put up a problem that was so wildly difficult, it was clear that no one else would be able to do it. So he chipped a small feature for others to use. Today, the chip version is V7. Gil's original problem is V9. He did that in 1959. Most people in 1959 were hammering pitons. You know, to imagine bouldering V9 at that time is is wild, considering the iconic boulder problem Midnight Lightning wasn't done until 1978. So it's a full 20 years later. And technically Midnight Lightning is only V8. You know, it's not even the same difficulty. You know, to be 20 years ahead of the time is pretty wild. I mean, 1959, you're like, Jesus. The enormous amount of physical strength, the gifts he had were just incredible. A one-armed front lever, are you kidding me? That, you know, I mean, how many climbers can do that today? And it wasn't just on the boulders either. He was establishing incredible technical routes in the mountains by himself, alone, free solo. That's pretty rad. I just never really thought of John Gill as a big soloist, but I guess it makes sense considering he was bouldering at such a high level. I suppose it's all sort of a spectrum. But because he would go to the top of the steep part of the wall and then walk down the backside of the mountain, but not bother to scramble up, you know, 20 minutes more of, you know, low angle scree to stand on the summit, the American Alpine Club refused to put his climbs into their records. They said, well, it's not a climb if you didn't reach the summit. And that was their convenient way of ignoring that there was this guy who was so much better than everybody else out there. Climbing's establishment just didn't know what to do with this anomaly, because that is what he was, an anomaly. Infinitely strong, imagining moves that seem magical, and disinterested in the spotlight of Yosemite that the leading climbers of the day were drawn to. The world's best climber had no interest in applying his talents to the most intriguing climbing puzzles of the day. And that made a lot of people scratch their heads. The thinking was that a generational talent was being wasted on a bunch of tiny rocks that nobody would ever care about. He didn't care that the rest of the climbing world wasn't interested in what he was doing. Did you see a difference mentally between what you were doing on the boulders and your free solos? I'll tell you something that I've never mentioned, I don't think, to anybody, and that's kind of a metaphysical aspect of rock climbing and particularly bouldering. I don't know if anyone else <laughs> has ever visualized it the way I did, but for all the years that I free soloed, most of the time I would envision an invisible cord above me leading up to the firmament. And as I climbed, the cord would come up. It was sort of like being on a top rope. 
Now, for bouldering, in which you're going up no more than, let's say, 20 feet or so, that cord could go either direction. If it goes down to the ground, you're attached to it, and it goes down to the ground, you're going to struggle. Now, you may make it up something, but you will struggle. If you refine that particular climb, do that boulder problem over and over until it becomes smooth and almost effortless, then that invisible cord goes up above you and pulls you up. And you tend to feel like you're floating. You just kind of float through them. Virtually all of my climbing, all the years, has been solo climbing. Now, not the sort of things that you do these days, but, you know, very modest stuff. And from that first climb up the east face of Long's Peak, what I've really enjoyed is exploratory solo climbing. Going up with just a rappel line, you know, a little bit of equipment, that sort of thing. And so what I saw was that there was a continuum of climbing boulders, which would take a gymnastic approach and uh, the use of dynamics. Chalk I used everywhere, you know, not just on boulders. I would take a block of chalk with me climbing in the Tetons. Um, but I saw a continuum, you know, 10, 15, possibly 20 feet, a little bit more. And uh, all of a sudden, you're out of bouldering into, you know, what you call free soloing today. The hard moves you made down at the bottom. And in this continuum, once you, once you progress beyond, uh, you know, 15, 20 feet or whatever was relatively safe, you know, you're actually climbing. Now, I did go on a number of rope climbs, but I never really enjoyed them as much as going out and soloing things. After graduating with a degree in mathematics, Gill entered the Air Force and ended up stationed on an Air Force base in eastern Montana and began climbing in the Black Hills of South Dakota. The needles are these incredible granite teeth that stick out of the forest. The climbing is run out, the holds are super small, the aesthetic is pure adventure. And it was here that Gill would establish one of the most famous problems, the boulder problem Gill felt would earn him the respect of climbing's elite. Can you share that story with us? Sure. Um, first of all, the thimble is a small rock formation on the edge of the Needles High parking lot. It's on the side of a hill, and the face is about 35 feet high, I guess, something like that. Bouldering back in the day, and particularly highballing back in the day, were legitimately dangerous because there weren't any pads. So if you imagine climbing any of the boulders that, that we take for granted now, but without the sea of foam below you, imagine just landing on the ground each time. And, you know, most bouldering areas now, people have sort of made landings and like move some rocks around or move some bushes and, and sort of like flatten things. You know, imagine going to that boulder the first time when it's just a jumble of rocks below you. And if you fall off, you're basically trying to land like a cat in between the rocks it's much more dangerous and uh, just a much more serious undertaking. At that time, uh, right in the fall zone, there was also a parking railing, which uh, emphasizes the severity of what Gil was doing. But uh, as far as getting up it, you know, one day I was down there and uh, was moving along the bottom, went up about halfway. About halfway up, there was a committing move, a sort of point of no return where you could either continue on or escape off left. My body just kind of took over <laughs> and I went on up to the top and when I got to the top I mean it was almost without conscious thought I, it's a funny sensation I got to the top and I do remember that 
the thought that immediately came to mind is I'm certainly glad that's over. And I definitely have reached the limits of what I'm willing to do. And I don't think I ever did anything like that afterwards either. It would not have been pleasant. Probably would have broken my leg or something. But at the time, I just didn't think about those things. When it was done, Gill had established a 30-foot V5 or a 512 free solo, depending on how you look at it. At the time, the hardest grade in the country was 5.9 plus. But I really didn't say much of anything about it. Somehow, word got back. The news eventually would make its way to Royal Robbins, the kingpin of the golden era of Yosemite climbing, considered by most the greatest climber of his generation. He was a pure alpha male, competitive and driven. After the break, Robbins goes out to prove that he was Gil's equal. Though he, he wasn't, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> Certainly not as a boulder. Element is a zero sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Wood Barrel Bourbon Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I choose. They're offering new customers 20% off any purchase with the code CLIMBINGGOLD. Or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. So in 1964, Robbins, not to be outdone, makes this long drive to South Dakota from California to prove he could match Gill. That maybe Gill should be using his talents for something bigger, something better. Robbins got his ass handed to him. Robbins would later tell John Sherman in an interview, I considered my greatest failure to be my effort on the thimble. I could see that even if I worked on it forever, it was very unlikely I would ever climb it. Do you consider the thimble your greatest achievement? No. As a matter of fact, I never considered that particular climb to be a boulder problem. Never. First of all, it was too long and a little bit too hazardous. I don't remember it involved any kind of dynamics whatsoever. It was just pinching nubbins and things. But I didn't keep a tick list. I have never kept a diary or a log, which I, means I have trouble you know, remembering some of these things. If you ask me, oh, what's my favorite boulder problem, my hardest boulder problem, I really don't know. Gil's academic work career drove much of where he worked on his craft, the Southeast, where he got his master's from the University of Alabama, the Fort Collins area, where he earned his PhD in mathematics. He would eventually settle into a job as a professor at Southern Colorado University 
and would publish dozens of papers on the analytic theory of continued fractions, complex functions, and linear fractional transformations, while continuing to crank out one-arm pull-ups into his 70s. He remained an anomaly, a lone voice for this new sport. Slowly, over the decades, Gill would come to be appreciated for his contributions. Eventually, in the late 1980s, time and wear and terror would catch up with Gill, and he would step away from hard bouldering, but not free soloing or gymnastics. My contribution to climbing is, is simply pushing it gently towards, towards a gymnastic perspective. I devised a, a system of grading, B1, B2, and B3, back in the late 1950s, my system, uh, B1, was to be equivalent to the hardest things that, have been, that, that were being done on longer roped rock climbs, free climbing. And then the, the B2 was to be a step beyond that. And that was to be a, a wide coverage of anything harder than those uh, difficult, difficult pitches on longer climbs. And B3 was supposedly a, a purely objective rating because one person would climb it and people would try and they couldn't climb it. It was B3 until somebody climbed it, then it would drop more likely to be two. So I devised the rating system in an effort to get people to think of bouldering, you know, as a separate activity, something that you do not just for practicing or fun, but actually you could devote a lot of time to it and be serious about it. But I didn't want it broken down into a gradation system that would just encourage nothing but difficulty. Because to me, I saw the execution as being just as important as overcoming the difficulty. And uh, I expressed this, uh, you know, throughout the years. And of course, nobody paid any attention. <laughs> Today, Gil is 84. He's no longer climbing. Severe scoliosis in his back makes walking difficult but he hasn't stopped moving. When we talked to him last summer, he had just returned from a local playground that had a set of monkey bars. So yeah, I have the routine. I do some pull-ups to go up and down 30-foot hill and uh, do some push-ups and things like that. And yeah, I still, I still get a feeling of lightness at the age of 83 doing these exercises. Mm. That's a good feeling. That's not to say that I can immediately do them because it takes about 10 minutes to warm up each time, make sure that I don't pull something or damage something. <laughs> and I do take a lot of ibuprofen. <laughs> <laughs> I would counsel people not to get into bouldering these days, as a matter of fact, uh, because of all the spinal damage that it did me. And I, you know, I see the mats. I mean, I've walked around on the mats inside climbing gyms underneath bouldering sections. But it looks like what's happening is that, well, you put the mats in. If you were drop, if you were going to drop off, like I used to, maybe, maybe if your the bottom of your foot is like four feet above the ground or something, that's great. You know, you're not going to be hurt there. But you put the bouldering mats in, and all of a sudden, people are jumping off from 20 feet up. And so there are going to be some injuries long-term. What do you think of modern climbing competitions? Is that, is that what you envisioned when you, you thought of a performance? I was just looking at one of these uh, bouldering contests a couple of days ago on my computer. And uh, what I see is a lot of struggling. What I see is 
something really artificial with all these corners and edges and things that people have to balance through and cross pressure on. It's not much fun to watch. I mean, even as a climber, I get bored watching that stuff. The one aspect of it that I find pleasing is some of the people that do the speed climbing just kind of float up the rock. You know, if, if I were omnipotent, <laughs> were to design bouldering competitions, I would go back to a required and an optional, and I'd have people, people show me how they can float up a required boulder problem, and I'd grade them on that, and then I'd say, go ahead and do the hardest thing that you can do, and there'd be, be some uh, various types of boulder problems available for them to work on there. I don't see any of the fluidity, the grace. I see a lot of dynamics. It's not terribly well controlled. You know, a lot of feet flying sideways and things like that. And I guess it could be exciting, but I hardly ever mention this because no one pays any attention to it and they shouldn't. You know, the sport belongs to the people doing it right now. It doesn't belong to us old timers. Alex, what do, you, what do you make of all this? What do you make of Gil? John Gill, in some ways, was underappreciated in his contribution, possibly because he was so countercultural, which is funny because at a time when climbing was already considered countercultural and, you know, done by misfits, John Gill was even too far <laughs> into, the, into the misfit category because he was climbing in a way that, that other people just weren't really into, uh, you know, climbing very small rocks for practice, basically, at a very, very high level. I mean, it's funny to think of John Gill, the the sort of introverted mathematician doing his own thing, climbing incredibly hard, small rocks, and it just not really being embraced by, by, you know, mainstream climbing, even though climbing was so far from mainstream at that point. People say that they care about style, but really, they still care about getting to the top. And like, in, in a way, John Gill was just taking that a step further, where he didn't even care about the summits, like he only cared about the style in which he climbed something and, and the quality with which he was able to climb it, like how well he was able to climb something. You know, it's interesting because today bouldering has been this accelerant for the the sort of explosion of our sport. Um, it'll be one of the three disciplines at the Olympics, but it didn't it didn't really take off right away. It didn't really become accepted. Um, yes, people were bouldering in the '60s and '70s, but it didn't really gain momentum or assume its place in climbing until really the 1990s. Uh, why do you think that is? The bouldering that John Gill was doing in the whatever in the 60s or whenever he uh was so far ahead of its time that you didn't really need to be able to boulder that well to be able to climb the walls of the time and as climbing standards have increased bouldering has become more and more necessary i mean it, like in some ways you can think of bouldering as sort of the vanguard of the sport it's like the most difficult aspect of climbing and it's taken a really long time for climbing you know, climbing big walls and sport climbing and, you know, basically climbing in its more general forms to reach the point where you have to be a good boulder to still be a good climber in general. You know, rock climbing in Yosemite in the golden age, like climbing big walls, didn't really require, you know, I hate to say didn't require climbing skill, but in terms of physical fitness could be done by anyone with basic fitness. You know, if you could hike well and do a bunch of pull-ups, like you'd be fine to climb big walls like that back in the day like if you could toil for a long time i guess it was also a pretty good way to just end up hurt i think for people who were bouldering back in the day it was much more akin to to skateboarding or sort of extreme skiing or something where 
you're basically taking hard falls all the time and you're frequently getting hurt or really maybe comparable to extreme mountain biking or something like downhill racing or something where people wreck all the time they get hurt all the time and, and really every every time you fall there are consequences nowadays it's hard to imagine because you wind up with so much foam below you that you know you can fall on your back from the middle of a boulder over and over and just be like oh you know geez knock the wind out of me but it's like basically fine you know that was not the case 20 30 years ago um, I kind of think of bouldering as haiku, you know, like this super distilled down potent version of climbing. I don't think haikus are that potent because I don't get them at all. <laughs> well, <laughs> to each his own. Like, I don't know. I just, I remember when I was getting into it, people be like, oh, you're practicing. And it's definitely not practice. Like you get all the feelings, right? When I'm off the ground 10 feet up or like, when you or Nina are climbing something like too big to flail, you sure as hell don't feel like you're practicing, right? Uh, you you know that that is undeniably the main event. That's what you've come for, right? No, that's interesting. You know, I've been bouldering all the time for the last month. And uh, yeah, you definitely, almost counterintuitively, bouldering can be used to access all the feelings of of what I call normal climbing. E- even on normal-sized boulders, you often get quite scared on top outs or like you get past the normal part of the problem. And then when you're doing the top out, suddenly the rock is a little more friable or a little more covered in lichen and suddenly it gets a little more scary. And now you're like past where the pads are and nobody's spotting anymore. And you're just like, oh, this is starting to feel pretty serious. And you definitely get all the same emotions that you would on a run out trad climbing lead or, you know, on some kind of first ascent where you're just not really sure where you should be going. You know, it's like you definitely can get all the same sensations of of other types of climbing all packed into a boulder. I think Gil's biggest gift might be, you know, his ability to see beauty in bits of rock that other people were overlooking. Um, you know, he's he's he saw something in the scraps, basically. Uh, and in a way that really gives meaning to a piece of rock and. Um, it didn't really necessarily matter where that piece of rock, it didn't necessarily have to be like a postcard perfect. I mean, it could have graffiti, it could have a parking rail underneath it. Realistically, I think of three boulders in particular, like uh, three bouldering areas that are like little nodes. These these people, th- these places are like pretty scrappy, but they've launched thousands and thousands of climbing careers. They're like, they're essentially like gateways, right? <laughs> totally, totally. Uh, Indian Rock totally. in Berkeley. Stony Point in LA yeah. and and Rat Rock in New York City, <laughs> which well, which which makes total sense. I mean, and and that you know, it's like basically the three boulders that you just described are all in the biggest population hubs in the country. You know, LA, San Francisco, and New York. Which you know, obviously, they just have a lot of talent around them. You know, there's just a lot of people there, so a lot of people get to try climbing. I think the interesting thing about that is it just shows how much access influences skill in the sport. You know, I mean, I think that's what we're seeing with gyms now is that the more access there is to climbing, the more talented climbers you wind up with, which is not a surprising thesis by any means, but uh, but it is just interesting to see it play out. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Then Beer. For photos to go with the story, you can follow us along at Climbing Gold over on Instagram. 
Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was written and edited by Elizabeth Nakano and me, Fitzcahal. Music by Amy Stolzenbach, Brennan O'Connell, and Cordelia Zars, who also provided additional editing. Our executive producers for Duct Tape and Beer are Becca Cahal and Lisey Hendricks, and for RXR Sports, Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy. Thank you for listening. <laughs>